What's going on, guys? We are back with episode 38, I believe, of the JPS podcast, and we have part two of the Lyle McDonald's Woman's Book installment. And in this episode, Lyle and I delve into polycystic ovary syndrome, menopause, and some key psychological uh, considerations uh, surrounding nutrition uh, for females, more specifically stress as it relates to uh, adherence to diet. So this is a must-watch episode. Uh, Lyle continues to show why he is definitely one of the experts uh, in this area uh, relating to physiology and nutrition and training. And just an FYI, guys, we have very few tickets left to the Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference uh, 2018 in Melbourne, Australia. So if you're wanting to join and hear it, the it experts can. and the juggernauts of the yeah, industry, this is a great segue. Uh, now, you know, make sure you grab your tickets. They are available in the description box below. So without further ado, yes, Lyle McDonald and enjoy the show. High testosterone and some right. of the side effects and stuff. But uh, specifically, what are you know some of the ways that Females who have uh, PCOS can deal with, uh, you know, their nutrition and training, how they can approach things. You know, I know you've uh, spoken about lower carb before, um, right. but anything further on that, I'm sure the listeners would appreciate. Yeah. So, so polycystic ovary syndrome, again, is one of the, like, the most common reproductive uh, disorders or dysfunctions in women. And it's diagnosed by what's called the Rotterdam criteria. And a woman has to have at least two of three of the following. Uh, multiple cysts on her ovaries. Hence the name. I find it odd that you can be PCOS and not have that, but mm. talk to the damn people. I, 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 <laughs> I, that kind of, I, I, once you get medical stuff, I just kind of like it, just it is what it is. Um, insulin resistance or either an, an menstrual cycle dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And, hyper, and, and so hyperandrogenism, elevated testosterone levels, well, whatever, that's good enough. Androgens are a group term at DHEA, DHEAS, whatever. Just Elevated androgens, let's just leave it at that, Super com- is common. Also, obesity. Mm-hmm. Insulin resistance is kind of the hallmark of this. And what that means is just that the body is not responding well to, to the hormone insulin. You get blood sugar swings. And there's just a whole host of down, like they're still looking into it mechanistically, like what's going on. The elevated insulin can also be part of what drives testosterone. Because hyperinsulinemia, the elevated insulin, causes changes in adrenal gland hormone enzyme synthesis, which causes whatever to be converted in DHEA, which is adrenal androgen, and then that and then that causes more insulin. Testosterone in women causes insulin resistance, and then insulin resistance in women causes elevated testosterone. So it becomes this really major exactly, feedback. Yeah. And a common treatment, well, they use metformin, which is an insulin sensitizer. They frequently use birth control, which we talked about briefly at the beginning when you asked me about topics. And the reason that they use that is that all forms of birth control cut testosterone by 50%. Yeah. Now, this is fantastic for a PCOS woman trying to treat the medical, you know, if she doesn't want the central fat, which increases heart disease risk. She wants to be fertile. She wants to have a child. She doesn't, you know, want uh, hair loss or, or whatever it is. That's great. But again, briefly going for an athlete, that's a disaster mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to cut a woman's testosterone levels in half. That is a disaster for a female athlete. Yeah. So again, context, um, 
the 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 hyperinsulinemia, the elevated, uh, you know, the the lack of a response to insulin. Tr the traditional, well, there's two different approaches. If you read the literature, it will say that lowered lowered carb, and I don't necessarily mean low carb diets. Just by lowered, let's say 40% of total calories, somewhere in the you know one to one and a half gram per pound, or like a two to three grams per kilo. You know. Less than the 60 to 75 percent that are kind of the standard dietary recommendations, 30, 40 percent, somewhere in that range. That works. But then the studies are like, oh, but so does a high carb, low fat diet. But here's the thing. When you look at those low, high carb, low fat studies, it's always high fiber, low glycemic, low glycemic, unrefined carbohydrates, you know, mm -hmm. the kind nobody eats. And that's my problem with that conclusion. If you're willing to eat those foods, a high carb diet, because it will lower what's called the glycemic load, which is just the glycemic index times the total amount of carbs. So you can lower that glycemic load by either lowering the, the 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 glycemic index, kind of how quickly that food digests, or you can lower the total amount of carbs. And I find for most people, because let's face it, low glycemic index foods don't taste very good. It's easier to just lower the total amount of carbs. And that's been shown clinically, and it lowers insulin. But then you add protein, moderate dietary fat, all tends to have kind of a synergistic effect on lowering insulin levels. Even a slight weight loss in PCOS women causes like five to ten percent of current body weight has a staggering benefit. Um, another thing that would sort of be diagnostic, because again, there is this lean type of PCOS woman mm. is not as frequently insulin resistant, especially if they're active. But with obesity, and PCOS and obesity go hand in hand, yeah. insulin resistance goes to basically 100%. Like I'm not exaggerating. Like it's, it's literally like if you have PCOS and you are overweight, with pretty much 100% certainty, you will have insulin resistant, resistance and you will benefit from lowering your carb, total carbohydrate intake. And for some women, it may be a very low carbohydrate diet. You know, it may be 100 grams. Per day. There's been a couple studies where they even used like, you know, very low calorie diets like my rapid fat loss diet for like four weeks and they get a 10 kilo fat loss and their fertility, you know, their, their everything, so many things normalize so staggeringly because high excess body fat is causing its own set of issues. Um, regular activity, right? Exercise improves insulin sensitivity. In, but it need the PC and here's the difference between say the PCOS woman optimal and say the general fitness woman. Ideally, the PCOS woman would be exercising daily. A woman just seeking general fitness may want to just go lift weights for 30 minutes and do cardio for 30 minutes and do that three times a week and that's it. PCOS woman ideally is doing something daily because that's going to improve local insulin sensitivity. So she might alternate weights, cardio, weights, cardio, weights, cardio. There's also some some evidence, you know, we focus on body weight way too much, and it's just an easier term. But for the PCOS woman to even lose body fat and gain some muscle with proper training and diet, that also, because it's really not body weight that's the issue, it's excess body fat. But that's just, typically, if you've got a high body mass index, you've got, you don't typically, you're not muscular unless you're an athlete. So if you're the average woman with PCOS and a high body mass index, Statistically speaking, you're going to have high body fat percentage, but if you lose fat and replace it with muscle, that will benefit you. Muscle is where you know insulin disposes of glucose, blah, 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 blah. There's also like a million and one supplements that can, and I've got a laundry list of them, all of which are insulin sensitizers. They basically all improve the body's ability to use insulin. Can and the two that- Top have, three, oh, your top two, top two. Well, the, the top, the top, really the, the two that have gotten the most work 
are called the inositols. And there's myo-inositol and there's another one that I can't remember the name of offhand. And what this is doing, it's, it's affecting, so like, right, so the pancreas releases insulin when you eat carbs or protein. It goes to the muscle. Magic happens. This is my description of all of the, all of, there's a, a, a dozen steps in the middle here. And then the skeletal muscle absorbs and uses glucose. Somewhere in that magic happens bit, there's a pathway that's become dysfunctional. And the myo-inositols uh, seem to address that and um, basically improve that overall function. And these things have just been studied. And every week there's another review study about how these things just do. And, and there's two different kinds that have slightly different effects. One improves the insulin sensitivity, which improves certain hormones. The other one improves like reproductive function. So there's, there's a lot of different things going on. There's stuff in the brain. There's stuff in the muscle. There's stuff in the ovaries. And, you know, other, there's other things. Cinnamon, believe it or not, uh, chromium, alpha-lipoic acid, vanadyl sulfate was thrown in. You know, these were all kind of early bodybuilding supplements, actually. But the inositols are really the ones that have been um, studied the most. And then there's some, some other cofactors. But, you know, I, I would always, of course, address diet and training first. And but these – for the PCOS woman – and again, so context. Yeah. Women with the hyperandrogenic form of PCOS are some of the best strength power athletes you'll ever train. <laughs> They're – awesome. They gain muscle and strength more like men. They're aggressive. They're combative. They'll punch in the face if you say the wrong thing to like they're and, and that's, and it's been shown something like 30% of Olympic female gold medalists have hyperandrogenic PCOS. Like it is, it is truly a biological advantage for female athletes mm -hmm. in, in certain sports. Even there's also this, this subclinical hyperandrogenism. It's like 20 to 30% above normal. That was found originally in swimming, which is a power sport, uh, even runners, because it just lets women, they gain muscle a little bit easier, they recover a little bit better, they're more anabolic, they're a little bit higher bone density. Like elevated testosterone in women has a staggering benefit. And it's actually hilarious because currently the political agenda, seeing papers that are like, nope, we can't conclude that testosterone benefits female athletes. I'm like, you guys are Oh, it makes me want to just kill somebody. Um, because it's it's a political agenda. It's got to do with uh, transgenderism in sports, um, sex, uh, gender testing, and it's something I don't touch that in the book either. This is a political issue right now. They are ignoring biology. I care about the biology, not the politics. And but there's just it's it's not debatable. The the, the testosterone elevated androgens in women has has enormous benefits on their sports. So if you're a PCOS woman who's a power lifter or strength power athlete or, or any kind of performance athlete, actually trying to correct the insulin resistance or lower your – that's not what you want to do. It's a trade-off. It, it is a trade-off. You have to do you – know, you, you may have to do – even their moderate carb diets tend to work better. Um, one of the first women I ever coached, actually, I know she had P overt PCOS. She responded to a cyclical ketogenic diet. It was amazing for her because it it eliminated her her insulin sense insulin resistance issues for those five days. Um, so even female and and typically those women enter power sports anyway, yeah. whether it's physique strength power. 
those sports don't have as high of a carbohydrate requirement to begin with, right? They're not run. You don't. You're not seeing a lot of of, of heavy PCOS women, female runners, for example. You might see them uh, throwing shot or throwing hammer or powerlifting or Olympic lifting, but you're not seeing them in in the thinness sports. So they're not. They just don't have those. They don't have that 10 to 12 gram per kg carb requirement that that an endurance. Has. So so they will do better with still with higher protein moderated carbs, lower fat, yeah. but the PCOS woman who's trying to deal with the clinical consequences, because increased heart disease risk, insulin resistance is not healthy long-term, she may want to become pregnant. For her, cutting testosterone, and she probably also doesn't want to gain as much muscle as possible. Mm -hmm. For her, cutting testosterone and have to treat, of course, with birth control, that won't help her get pregnant, but it will make her healthier, yeah. right? That's obviously not a solution to the, the fertility issue, but losing some body fat, um, moderating her carbs, looking at these supplements to deliberately try to, to improve these clinical parameters, probably super important for her. Vitamin D is critical in the same way it's critical for everyone. So, so that there, but again, the, the difficulty with PCOS is that there's like, you can have four different kinds. Mm. You can have free symptoms or you can have any combination of two and it's frequently difficult to determine that or it gets misdiagnosed unless you have something else that's really makes it very overt. Like I said, the hyperandrogenic form is easy to see, is yeah. always know. The yeah. other two, not so much. Awesome. Great info on that. Thanks, Lyle. Uh, menopause and perimenopause, yeah. a quick primer, similar yeah. type situation. You know, what are the symptoms females can... Uh, look for yeah. and yeah, anything they can do to alleviate or you know sure. mi mitigate the symptoms to any degree so perimenopause and peri just means near you know peri 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 workout nutrition or whatever that dumb term is and that's basically <laughs> sort of the early phase of essentially a woman's reproductive system is winding down and unless things have changed it's women have basically a, a, a fixed number of eggs of follicles and kind of when they run out her system just sort of turns off and perimenopause is just kind of the early stages of that and it has an early phase and a late phase as you and, and it, it it's typically thought that menopause is about 50 perimenopause 40 to the mid 40s it can happen much earlier or it can happen later but like that's kind of the average right early perimenopause and late perimenopause are a little bit different. And then menopause, we've got menopause and then with or without hormone replacement. And I'll try to kind of address these all sort of quickly. Um, honestly, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't, it's been so long since I've looked at that section. I believe in early perimenopause, like I think it's, it's probably progesterone that starts to go down first just because the eggs, you start to become anovulatory. The eggs aren't being released as frequently just because there aren't as many of them. And then late perimenopause, you start to see the shift into insulin resistance, uh, as you're kind of, that's just, let me back up. Menopause without hormone replacement is marked by a handful of things, including insulin resistance, because estrogen is a key, key player in this, in improving insulin sensitivity, an increase in body weight and body fat, a shift from a lower body fat pattern to an upper body, more, a more male body fat pattern, loss of skeletal muscle mass, loss of bone mineral density. You start to get all the side effects and it's called the climacteric and i don't know why i really i it's i kind of my guess is it's a german term because all these things like it, it suggests climate to me it's like i think they're just trying to describe it's a perfect storm of stuff that goes wrong like that's that's my guess but honestly i, sh I should have looked it up and i just kind of never thought to um 
And and there you're talking about mood swings, hot flashes. Um, you know, there can be some cognitive issues. Uh, one thing that probably doesn't really get talked about, you know, you see changes in uh, vaginal moisture, uh, sexual function. There can even be vaginal atrophy, which you know, obviously has an impact on a woman's sex life late, in, late into life. And I just want to mention this because I think it's it's funny and stereotypical paper I came across last year. And they asked men what their biggest concern was for their partners going through menopause. And what it basically came down to was, how will this impact my sex life? Because, <laughs> you know, men care. men care. I just thought for some reason I saw it, I'm just like, of course that's what men responded on average. But it wasn't like how she's going to feel. It's like, how will this affect me getting laid? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so you, you just see so, – so what's happening at perimenopause is just kind of like – this shift towards all of that. So in late perimenopause, you're starting to see the insulin resistance develop because estrogen is low. You're starting to see that gradual loss of bone mineral density, metabolic rate starts to go down, the shift in fat patterning, all the in the early perimenopause. So it's kind of it's it's a little it's different hormonally, and I think I grouped it differently in the book, but like I said, I haven't looked at it in a while. Then you hit menopause, where ever like basically her her reproductive system shuts off completely. She's no longer producing estrogen, she's no longer producing progesterone. There are no follicles, um, or at least she's not releasing it uh, from the ovaries, estrogen. Now, women's bodies do make estrogen within, within cells, right? Her androgens can be converted into estrogen within fat cells, within other tissues. And one of the, the long-held theories is that part of the reason women gain more body fat as they hit menopause, it's their body's attempts to keep at least local estrogen levels higher, because they have more fat to convert the androgens to estrogen. I don't know if that's still supported. It's been a really long time since I've looked at that. So that's with and so and, and so that's without hormone replacement therapy. So hormone replacement therapy, for all practical purposes, you can think of it as the menopausal version of horm hormonal birth control. They're replacing estrogen and progesterone with synthetic forms. There's been a big interest in androgen replacement, low dose, for not only health benefits, but also sexual function. That's still really new, and there still seems to be a lot of resistance to it because I think classically trained physicians, like testosterone's a man's hormone. We don't want to give this to Graham Graham. Like I, I think that's really – I think it's just – it's but, but, but the, data, the data is increasingly showing that there's just staggering benefits to this. Mm. And, and what I actually really want to mention, and I'll, I'll come back to the breast cancer thing, one of the big – issues with, with hormone replacement is there's been this fear over increased breast cancer risk from an early study. And I'll come back to that and address this first. Did I lose you? No, it's too good. Hello. Wow. Jacob? Yep. I'm here. Hello. You there, Jacob? Yeah, I'm here. I can I can see and hear you. All right, yeah, you froze up. So, um, okay. you know, if your country if your if your country weren't a hoax, let's uh, <laughs> not. That. So, um, I don't. Where did I get cut off when I was talking um, about testosterone replacement? When you're talking about breast cancer, the concern with breast cancer. 
Well, okay, so yeah, so one of the earliest studies called the Women's Health Initiative uh, was looking at hormone replacement therapy uh, for postmenopause and showed that they saw such an increase in breast cancer risk that they actually stopped the study. This was over a decade ago, and this caused really a drastic decrease in the use of hormone replacement. The data has been reanalyzed, and one of the mistakes they made was they grouped women from 50 to 70. And when you aggregate the results like that, you, you kind of get some false results. And the, the current idea now is that for, for most women, the risk of, of increase, the increased breast cancer risk is overstated so long as you, you start hormone replacement therapy early and don't continue it past like five or 10 years. Like once a woman gets past a certain age, you have to stop. But when they were looking at women who were in their late 60s and early 70s, that was kind of skewed the data. Um, I will say, and again, you know, like like eating disorders, like breast cancer is not a joke. I know it is one of the most traumatic things a woman can go through. The overall risk of hormone replacement early in menopause seems to be very low unless, you know, if a woman has a familial history of breast cancer, she has the breast, the BRCA mutation, you know, we're going to get to the point, hopefully, where they'll be able to determine if a woman is a good candidate based on, you know, her relative risk patterns. Because mm. overall, the increased risk of heart disease for women who don't go on hormone replacement is proportionally greater than the increase of breast cancer, unless a woman has has this. And, and the reason is that lifetime estrogen exposure is, is one of the risk factors. So the idea is that, okay, a woman's been exposed to estrogen from puberty to menopause, and we're now going to maintain that for the next 10 or 15 years. That's kind of where this comes from, is where that estrogen signaling may be causing long-term issues. So looping back to the androgen thing, one of the papers I, I came across that, that I thought was really interesting is, like I said, testosterone or androgens convert to estrogen within local tissue. Fat cells have aromatase, stuff like that. Breast cancer cells don't. Breast cancer cells cannot do the conversion. So he postulated that it's possible that just giving women androgens and possibly progesterone for other reasons, progesterone they use micronized, they frequently use vaginal forms, and that's actually to, to maintain sexual function and some things like that. Um, he postulated that by giving women only, by giving them androgens instead of estrogen, you might be able to maintain local estrogen signaling, but avoid increasing estrogen signaling in the breast. So that'll be something I think hopefully five or 10 yeah. years down the road will we'll become will become a thing. But at least basically hormone replacement, it essentially reverses all the bad things that happen at menopause. It prevents the, the increase in weight gain and body fat percentage. There's a big concern. Estrogen is very involved in cognitive function. And there's at least some concern that 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 lack of estrogen signaling and, and women do frequently kind of report, you know, cognitive issues, mood swings actually very similar to what happens in the, the end tail end of the menstrual cycle, mm. right? The, during P, that, you know, the typical PMS week, estrogen crashes to a very low level. That's when women typically get mood swings, depression. I've known women that like literally they, they reported they're like, I, I lost my words. Like they can't, they just can't find their vocabulary. And then they start menstruating. Everything goes back to normal. Uh, some women report what are essentially hot flashes and that's due to the low estrogen. So hormone replacement does seem to reverse all of this. Um, all of these, you know, basically all of these negatives, but there is, again, yeah. there's always that potential risk of increased breast cancer risk. Um, but those are, that's so kind of what, would be ideal from like a dietary or training standpoint. Some of it does change depending on where, where a woman is and what happens. So 
I believe early perimenopause, women still fairly estrogen insulin sensitive, so you can keep carbs higher and fat lower. As she enters perimenopause, and frequently hormones are started then, but if she doesn't introduce hormone replacement, she's going to start becoming insulin resistant. So lowering her carbs, moderating her carbs. I mean, I'll say this again. I've said this in every podcast. If there's really one thing I hope women get out of this book or anything I talk about is to eat enough protein. <laughs> Honestly. I said we weren't going to talk about this today, Lyle. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just want to say that just, just generally. It's just like so, – so almost like take anything I say about carbs and fats, like assume – Sufficient protein is part of this. Like getting, just assume, just take that as de facto. So early perimenopause, diet can stay kind of the same. Late, probably want to moderate carbs, increase dietary fat, increase fullness. As women hit menopause, if they go on hormone replacement, that seems to maintain insulin sensitivity. And if they don't, they become insulin resistant. So the menopausal woman who's not on hormone replacement should probably moderate her carbs a little bit higher fat. Women on hormone replacement should can maintain carbs a little bit higher. Um, you know, other questions that come up that you've probably got in your list, but I'll, I'll go ahead and hit. You know, does weight loss or weight does weight gain is common at menopause? And the question is, well, does does weight loss become harder? Is it impossible for the menopausal woman? The drop in metabolic rate with age is a lot smaller than people realize. Um, I, I think when I did the numbers, even at, at like the the postmenopausal woman on hormone replacement, it's like four calories a year, and it's like fourteen if she's not on hormone replacement. So it's we're looking at forty versus one hundred and forty calories a decade, right? It's just not a big number. What we're seeing happen with age is people are less active. That that's really you know we're not active young kids anymore, and we're non-exercise activity thermogenesis typically goes down. And I, I say that in the sense that, A, we're, we're seeing a lot of masters athletes, both men and women, but I think increasing numbers of women because it's, it's becoming more acceptable for women to do these things that they just never they, never, they never thought to do and they were never really, it just wasn't socially acceptable. You have women in their 50s who are stepping on stage for physique competitions. There is an increasing number of female masters athletes that are, are they maintaining their 22, 23-year-old? Uh, weight and body fat percentage and performance? No, of course not. But what what the, the studies are finding is that what used to be thought was purely related to aging is mostly less activity. Mm. And that 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 is it if we maintain that activity as we get older, the the there's always a decrease in age. Strength power tends to go down faster than endurance, but by and large, you maintain a grand majority of it. You know, the loss in muscle mass, the loss in bone mineral density, the performance, the body fat percentage, the grand majority of it really is just being less active. Um, like I said, you can't dismiss the hormones. Obviously, the lack of estrogen signaling causes an increase in body weight and body fat percentage. It causes a shift in fat patterning. Even in that sense, and again, kind of like PCOS, many women will not want to go on hormone replacement. And I will say two things, which is as a man, I'm glad I don't ever have to make that choice. Because it's not a trivial one. It's it's truly not. Any more than hormonal birth control is a trivial choice. But it, it is a choice women have to, you know, they need to look at the pros and cons for themselves. And, and But some women will choose not to. And there are supplements that have been shown to either improve some of the 
you know, the climacteric effects, whether it's hot flashes, nude swings, which yeah. tends to be kind of neurochemical and lack of estrogen signaling. Um, I talk very in great detail about like soy protein and phytoestrogens, which would maintain at least small amounts of estrogen signaling um, in women who choose not to. Um, there's also a very new supplement I came across called Amberin, which is like succinates or something. And for some reason it caused women's estrogen, postmenopausal women's estrogen levels to go up because yeah. you're not going to be able to maintain as much signaling with these supplements, but even maintaining some will probably have benefits. Um, so that you know, so there's an uh, there are options for those women postmenopausally um, that that don't want to go the hormone replacement route. Awesome. And the final topic of discussion for today, um, we're going to get out of physiology now, but okay. although it very closely relates, because uh, as you know, um, you know, we cannot separate the psychology from the physiology because they're very often interrelated in the context of stress. Um, you know, this is very much uh, a reality and female biology, you know, which you stated in the book uh, in relation to cortisol release, yeah. clearance, um, a yeah. different response to, to that um, with females being more of a friend and what, what was what was a tender befriend, tender befriend. and it's fight or and flight, yes. Or fight or flight, correct. And um, women just typically, you know, and anecdotally I've worked with a lot of uh, females over the last, you know, eight to ten years and... I, I have definitely noticed that the societal pressure for thinness um, and yep. just the appearance causes a lot more, uh, yeah, issues in the females than it does the males, um, and that's yes. that interpersonal conflict, social rejection, all these kind of things. So, in terms of you know how we should best as practitioners or females listening, you know, approach this so that you know stress doesn't become an issue affecting adherence and all these kind of things. You know, how yep. does a female obviously deal with all these pressures and you know we you've done every single podcast uh, to date on female fat loss like you know why right. do females need to even lose fat in the first place right so how can they right. you know change the way that they're you know viewing themselves uh, in comparison to societal objectives right and and you know and I, I don't know that honestly that they can like mm. I, I it's an interesting question and I think I cited a weird little social psychology paper that basically pointed out that for women far more so than men dieting is more than a lifestyle choice it, it really becomes part of their identity because traditionally women have always been suggested to far more societal stress pressure for thinness for appearance it is increasing in men and I think we're starting you're, you're starting to see these issues more in men still to a significantly less degree, but, and, and, the, and the issues are different. For men, it's about being muscular and fit and strong mm. because these are yeah, the images. Different type of, yeah, yeah very, very different, and you're seeing sort of different, you're seeing, you know, bigorexia in men, and you typically see more traditional, quote-unquote, eating disorders in women. And I, I don't I don't know, really, honestly, you know, how, how to address that. Um, you know, there's some stuff it's in a different book project that I, I had looked at, you know, and one of the, one of the issues that sort of a reconceptualization of the process, like, you know, on the one hand, we do have the, you know, some of the movements, the healthy at all size and beautiful at any size. And I, I see both pros and cons of that. And I don't want to get into that issue in any sort of detail. Like there's no doubt that a, the, what's interesting is you actually just, if you pull men, on what they would prefer women to look like, it's not what women think. 
when most most you know and and the fact is that that you know women's magazines in the fashion industry i'm sorry is run predominantly by women and gay men yeah. and they are determining what women think they should look like and if you pull men they would rather women be five or ten kilos heavier than any of the images in those magazines in the same way that men's bodybuilding magazines tell are written by men who are telling men what they think women want oh yeah big pecs and big guns what do you get when you get big pecs and big guns every dude tells you how good you look <laughs> right and people, women their favorite body part is the butt so everyone is being exposed to sort of these ideological thoughts about appearance that are really have very little basis in what what the opposite sex wants but that doesn't change the fact that it exists that little girls are told from a very early age that if they don't look and and frequently you know you see this where their parents and frequently their mothers who grew up in that right i'm not saying these are you only know your own experience and if you grew up during the 70s there's you know one of the most brilliant things you'll ever see there was a weight loss there's a barbie Back in the 60s, one of my favorite stories, and she came with a diet plan, and it came with a scale that said 110 pounds, and her diet book said how to lose weight, don't eat, right? We had a generation of women, and my mother's one of them, that's how you dieted. You, if you didn't weigh the magic 110 pounds, you know, or whatever the magical body weight is, so you have this this feed-forward cycle of women who were told that they must weigh this, who then tell their little girls or their daughters, put, you know, I see it in my group. My kids are overweight. Should I put them on a diet? No, not unless you want to ruin them for the rest of their life. Mm. Get them eating healthier and exercising. Focus on that, you know, focus on the process, not the end result. And maybe that's part of it. Um, I remember years ago in a, some personal trainer newsletter to the effect of people who focus only on weight loss will always be disappointed, but people who focus on improving their health and fitness will usually lose weight or body fat. And I think there's, I think there's a great degree of truth to that. Not that, you know, and, 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 and if you read this book, like I don't ever really tell women like this is, it's not my place to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. I will give them the tools to get there once. Like if you're a physique athlete, you have to be a certain percentage. If you want a performance athlete, everybody else that's a personal choice. I will try to give them the best tools to get there. But, but women are faced with this issue that they have unrealistic expectations. People often have really poor expectations of what losing weight will do for them. There was a paper I came across years ago to the effect of they told people, what do you think will happen when you lose weight? Well, men think that when they get a six pack, they'll get laid. Women think that they'll get a boyfriend, they'll get a better job, they'll be more popular. And then of course, when those fail to materialize, they decide to just chuck the whole thing. And this is sort of, this is true of so many things with that. When you've got that focus on just that external validation, that external focus, that can cause a lot of problems because, you know, and, and if you're doing it for someone else, if you're doing it because you think it's going to help you do something other than be happier in your own skin, you're probably going to be disappointed. And I don't know if that answers the question. Like once you get into this kind of psychology, I'll be honest, it's not, it's not my strength. Um, but, um, but yeah, th this is really a problem, which then compounds with, I think, where you're going with this, which is like, you know, how women think they should diet, how women are told they should yeah. diet, okay. rigid dieting attitudes, and disinhibition, which, it, it, and it's all, you know, women are more likely to show what are called rigid eating attitudes. And dietary restraint and dietary restraint is not dieting per se it is a concern with your food intake mm. 
And in the modern world, you kind of have to be or you're going to become overweight, statistically speaking. You have to show some concern with what you're eating other than that, that tiny percentage that, that stays lean without thinking about it. But when you get dietary restraint and then it becomes very rigid of a I'm either eating healthy foods or eating non-healthy foods or clean versus and it becomes a moral thing that causes and then when you get stressed out then that causes disinhibition and you get stress eating which causes its own set of problems which kind of feeds forward into the whole loop right there's there's a whole thing of when you're stressed cortisol goes up your mood changes well if you eat sugar you typically yourself you self-medicate yourself to feel better now you feel guilty because you ate sugar and it just becomes this this really this really bad feed forward loop that it's very difficult to get out of. So, you know, I would love to say tell women not to be pressured by the images in the media, but I don't know that that's possible. Mm. Like I, I don't the reality is society is not going to change overnight, if at all. You know, I even mentioned this in the book. I mean, the Winter Olympics is going on and I'm not watching it, but I'm sure this has happened. When when commentators talk about male athletes, they talk about their performance. And as often as not, when they talk about female athletes, they talk about their appearance. Right. These are some of the greatest athletes in the world. Right. Doing things that most of humanity couldn't even if we wanted to. And the competitors are concerned with who, you know, how pretty, and it's even worse in certain sports. Ballet, gymnastics, figure skating have always had an aesthetic component. But even female athletes, and I've known them, I've known the ones, they know all about body composition, they know all about, they still go crazy with the scale weight. They still hate the blow feeling during, like they know, so the average woman almost has no chance. Her body weight spikes by three pounds, her clothes don't fit, she feels ugly, she feels unattractive, she feels fat. It's just, and society tells her, yeah, you are. And it's a real, you know, and of course, the other extreme is, oh, just be happy, which is probably a healthier message, but can certainly, I don't know how big this is in other countries. In the US, that movement has kind of gone to the other extreme. Like, make no mistake, you know, do, do, do I think, I, I had a troll years ago, he criticized me for, yeah, you know, not everybody can be 12%. I don't think everybody should. I don't think that's a realistic or necessary goal at all. You know, even even at you know the the average for women is like eighteen to twenty seven percent body fat. To most athletes, twenty seven percent is fat, mm-hmm. unless they're like physique athlete. Twenty seven percent is female is sloppy as hell. To a male, fifteen percent body fat is sloppy as hell. To the average person, fifteen percent is a fantastic goal, mm-hmm. even higher. You know, uh, I forget what the male averages are right now, but it's like th- this idea that that this extreme, and even then, this goes back to the physique thing we talked about, the unrealistic expectations. People see the fitness models, they see the physique athletes at their peak, and it's implied that these pe- that these folks stay that way year round. Yeah, exactly right. And they don't, right? For that one shot, and many of them truly rebound to the other extreme. Like I'm not talking about they go from 12 back to 18. In their off season, you hear you hear about a lot of competitors that they rebound back up to 30. Per, they can never get it together again. They can mm-hmm. never, especially if they dieted very yes. pathologically. There's this image, yeah, as being realistic and sustainable, and it's not on any level. So you know, if the average, and again from a health standpoint, 
if you lose five to 10% of your current body weight, your every clinical parameter of your health will improve. This has been shown study after study after study. So if a woman's 250 pounds, 120 kilos roughly, and she loses 12 kilos, her health will improve. I don't think most women will be satisfied with that. Mm. But if they focused on that and then maintained it and then lost the next 12 kilos and the next, you know, and, and I cite some studies in the book where women are asked, you know, what what's an acceptable weight loss? And it's like 32 kilos and half of them, most of them lost like half of that 16 kilos, 35 pounds. And they were miserable about it. Like, mm. are you kidding? Like, and they and, and that's and, and of course, they lost it half as quickly as they thought they would. But there are just these these absurdly not only expectations of where you'll end up, but how easily and how quickly you'll get there. And the dieting and fitness industry promotes this. And, you know, and that's me, that's where I guess focusing on the process or, or at least trying to become more internally motivated. And this, this gets into something like I see this online and, and people go, don't be externally motivated. I'm like, that's like telling a cat not to be a dog. Like you can't tell someone who's not internally motivated to do something to just become internally motivated. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, oh, it would be great if every kid in school was there to learn. No, nope, they're there because we make them and to get a piece of paper. Honestly, that's what realistically, it'd be great if they were, but they're not. It'd be great if everybody choosing a goal was just didn't want to see the scale go down, but it is what it is. At best, and there's something called self-determination theory, that's one of the current current things, like you become relatively more internally motivated. Yeah. And I used to see that with clients, and I'm sure you have too, mm -hmm. right? Every every client, every woman, female client, I want to lose weight. Okay. Week three, not losing any weight. Just, it'll happen. But I remember I had a client, this is early days, and like right about week four, she's getting frustrated, and she's complaining, and she she came back that Monday, and just her, something had changed. And she said, you know, I went, I went camping with my, or I went hiking with my family, and I was able to carry my kid on my back and keep up with my husband and not be exhausted. And right there, her attitude changed because yeah. suddenly it went from focusing on if I don't lose weight, I failed to this is improving <laughs> some life. aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge mental shift to go through. And when that, and then like, if you get bored, go Wikipedia self. And there's like, they have different levels of external, it's, you know. It's autonomy, uh, what is it? Self-efficacy yeah. yeah. and relatedness, all that stuff. Sure. <clears throat> and, and all that stuff, like with the self-efficacy, that's like being successful. And this is, I go, all, I go on and on about this all the time. If you're a trainer and you have someone who's new to this or has had bad experiences, I don't care what you have to do. Make them feel successful from minute one. If you crush them their first day, all you've just taught them again is, I can't do this. Crush them in six weeks, right? There's no rush. So, yeah, they're going to tell you, oh, I want you to work me to death. Let's just try it a different way because you've done this before and you get hurt, right? Start them light so that by day two they feel – give them something they can accomplish so they walk out of the gym feeling better. That builds self-efficacy. Dieting – and, and as humans, I think we, we tend to focus more on what we haven't achieved than what we have. I think that's been shown. Again, once you get into a not a psychologist, right? So someone will have lost 50 pounds or whatever, 22 kilos, and they gain back two. All they do is go, I failed. Mm. You, you, you lost 20. This doesn't matter. And you've also proven that you can do it, right? Hopefully that's success, but it doesn't, for some reason, we don't think that way. We focus yeah. on two 
gained rather than that 20 that that we or whatever it was and people end up self-sabotaging themselves on kind of every level um so that's an, i think that's another really big issue but that mm. it takes a change in mindset a being aware of it a i think being aware of what what these problems are what what problems this can cause with stress eating with you know it's like okay look stress happens and i will pause it i don't know if i wrote this in the book or not I haven't seen this studied, right? We talk about stress. We talk about allostatic load, which is the total amount of stress on the human organism. And it can be physical, dietary, relationship, work. It, it's all kind of the same to the body. And I posit that in the modern world, women are under probably not only more stress than men, but more stress than they've ever been in, right? So we go, we go back to whatever, the 50s. And realistically women didn't have a lot of job opportunities their responsibilities were you know whatever they would be uh take care of the home take care of the kids you know whatever the sort of the traditional traditional family then we got into the 70s and you know as as feminism said look you can if you don't want that if you don't want to do that that's fine you can go be a career woman or whatever then we got in the 80s 90s and now it seems like now a you've got the reality of the of just economic realities most people you need two incomes if you have kids the world is not cheap you there's also at least in the US among a certain vocal groups that it, it went from women can have it all, right? In the 80s, that was it. There's a great American commercial where a woman goes, you know, I can I can bring home the bacon, which means I can go to work and I can fry it up in a pan. I can, you'll never, never, never let you forget you're a man, which is like, I can be everything. I can be career woman, home giver, you know, sexy time. But it went from a woman can have all of that if she chooses to if she doesn't do all of that, she's failing. We have we have had this real mental mm -hmm. switch that I've seen that it's like, yeah, if you're not doing all, if you're not working 40 hours, getting all of your little kids to their play dates and violin and all that stuff you gotta do, taking care of the house and making sure that your partner, significant other, then you're failing as a woman. Now we try to add to that dieting, training, all these other factors and and the stress is just you know also you, you frequently hear about women whether they're athletes or physique athletes and this is their goal but if they're not with somebody who's also a fitness person that person doesn't get it they don't understand like you you have to be like again the narcissism my own training partner was a bodybuilder he was the most self-absorbed human being i've ever met because you have to be when i was speed skating that's all that mattered was my ability to train, sleep, recover, eat, because every everything else came secondary. And if you're with someone that isn't doesn't understand that or isn't into that, now that you get women that they're having to make their diet dinner, his dinner, the kids' dinner, somehow figure out how to sleep, get the cardio in, get the weight trained. They're up at four o'clock in the morning to get everything ready, do their cardio, go to work, get home, clean, cook, weights, kids. It's just it's it's too much, yeah. and when they and when they crack they crack, and even the non physique even the non athlete is still the women you know you're exposed to so much stress. Then we get the environmental reality of kid little girl little kids are taught oh you're not feeling good here eat this. Every social environment exposure we have is based around food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The tend and befriend thing you know it's like that. There's kind of that that 
meme or that trope in movies of the the women who are stressed or sad sitting around eating ice cream in their in their you know in their their bathrobes like that's what you do when you're having a bad day is you have chocolate you have ice cream that's how you cope with with those acute stressors so you know on addition to whatever women can find to you know try to realize that that these these societal pressures are unrealistic you know, again, I'm not, if a woman chooses to do it, that's one thing. If she's doing it, it's like the cardio thing. Do it because you choose to, not because you think it's expected of you, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Because that way you're controlling the choice rather than the choice controlling you. You know, if you don't do it for a significant other, which that happens a lot because people are having a like, oh, if I lose weight, it'll fix our, no, probably not. Um, you know, or, we'll, you know, whatever it's so, that, that, you know, that find stress outlets within the limits of your time availability, meditation, learning to cope, you know, with those quote unquote daily hassles. But again, if you don't have any time, good luck. Mm. You know, yeah. It's, it's, it, there's a lot going on and I, I would love yeah. Oh, for God's sake. Did I lose you? Oh, there you are. Um, so, so yeah, it's, there's a whole lot going on. No. Man, yeah, Australia well, needs better internet. I tell you what, I know. Um, it's horrible. some of it's all Skype, but but yeah. So you've got you know, there's other people that deal with the psychology of this a lot more than I do, certainly. Um, but you do have, and it, like, and, and to your point, it does interact with that stress system. When women are, when men men get stressed because they're preparing for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas women, it is that tend and befriend thing where they're going to go, you know, they're going to call their close friends or they're going to go look for a group dynamic. And that's probably going to be like, oh, let's go have wine and ice cream. Yeah. And that may not be the best solution to it. Go to a yoga class or whatever it is. Find, find that group dynamic mm-hmm. um, that's sort of supportive in that regards. Yeah. Well, Lyle, I think we've covered quite an extensive <laughs> amount of um, both the physiology and now the psychology. I can't thank you enough for your time as well as your contribution. Okay, to the uh, the fitness community and the the work that you've done, guys, I'm going to link uh, the book uh, Lyle has just written, which is which covers everything that he's discussed and more uh, in today's episode in the description box below. Uh, make sure you grab a copy because not only will you benefit tremendously from it, there's a lot of uh, theory as well as practical recommendations in there. But I think it's uh, only fair that we support someone who gives out so much. Uh, free content over the years um, and helps people without ever asking for anything in return. So guys, uh, thank you again, Lyle, and I hope you all enjoyed this episode. All right, go, go get some sleep. Now I've got to get up.